The gospel lesson comes from the gospel according to Luke, chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. Uh, You can find this on page 1042 of the Pew Bible. And in this gospel lesson, Jesus invites us to pray persistently. Please stand again as you are able for the gospel. From Luke 18, beginning at verse 1, we read in Jesus' name. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose hearts. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Father, these are your words. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Amen. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Dear Christians, your gracious Heavenly Father invites you to pray, and he promises to hear you. He does this because he loves us and he wants to give us good things. Too often, especially regarding prayer, we think of God as being reluctant or withholding. We sometimes think that that we really need to pray hard in order to get God's attention, or that we need to get a lot of people praying too in order to reach a certain prayer quota, which is unknown to us, but which God requires in order order to answer a prayer. But these ideas are all wrong, completely. God is not like that. He invites us to pray persistently, not because he is withholding, but he invites us to pray persistently because He loves us. And so it's more like this. If you pray for something and God does not answer in the way that you think he should, keep praying for it as long as you think your request is good. God welcomes you to be persistent. He is not annoyed by your persistence. He is our gracious Heavenly Father, and he invites us to come to him as beloved children come to their dear Father. And so consider the Lord's Prayer. This is the primary biblical text on prayer. Jesus' disciples asked him to teach them how to pray. And so how did Jesus start? How did he tell them to address God? Did he say to them to say, Dear God, I know you have billions of other people to watch over, so I don't know if you can hear me, and I don't know if you even care about little old me, but if you do, please listen to my request. Is that how Jesus taught his disciples to pray? Of course not. Jesus taught them to address God as our Father. Those two words are absolutely earth-shattering when it comes to prayer. Our Father. In his small catechism, Martin Luther does an absolutely beautiful job explaining this. And I I think this sentence is one of the true gems of his catechism. He says, God thereby tenderly encourages us to believe 
that he is truly our father and that we are truly his children so that we may boldly and confidently come to him in prayer, even as beloved children come to their dear father. And, and so imagine, if you will, a perfectly loving and attentive father. And this is the kind of father that every, every earthly father should aspire to be. We all fail, of course, and so we should confess those failings to God, our father, and to our children. And, and tragically, we also know that some children receive little or no good from their fathers. And if that's you, please know that your heavenly father is so much different. But imagine, if you will, a perfectly loving and attentive father. And imagine a little girl asking for an orange or climbing up on his lap saying, read this book to me, or falling down on the sidewalk, scraping her knee and crying out in pain. How does he respond to her? Now, he doesn't always give her exactly what she wants. He might give her an orange or he might say, supper will be ready in 20 minutes. He may read a story or he might say, let's pick up your toys first. We'll certainly quickly come to her and pick her up and dress her knee when she falls. But whatever he does and however he answers her requests is out of pure love. This is how we should think of God in prayer. Because Jesus teaches us to address him as our father. And so we should pray persistently and not lose heart. Not because God is distant from us and needs a lot of persuading, but we should be persistent and not lose heart because God is near to us and he is attentive to his children. He invites us to be persistent. This is kind of a strange parable. There are a few things that are just different from the rest of Jesus' parables. First of all, we get the meaning right away. Sometimes in Jesus' parables, he never tells us the meaning. He just tells the story and then forces us to chew on it for a while. Other times when Jesus does give the meaning, he saves it for the end. But here, we get the meaning right away. He told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose hearts. And when it says that we should always pray, that doesn't mean that we have to pray nonstop, 24 hours a day, like you're praying while you're driving your car, brushing your teeth, eating your supper, doing your homework, or talking with your family. Some of that is maybe sort of doable, but most of that is impossible. Rather, it means that we should pray often and regularly. Prayer should be our first response to any injustice we see, either in our own lives or in the lives of people around us. But I'm afraid that we often use prayer more like a last resort. We go to it when everything else fails. Instead, our first thought might be, what am I going to do about this? Or if it seems like an injustice out of control, we might think, the government should do something about this. Our first thought often reveals some kind of idolatry. And what I mean by that is that our first thought shows us who we really trust in. And that reveals who our God really is. God with a small g. And so if our first thought is, what am I going to do about this? That reveals that we trust ourselves more than anything else. Or if our first thought is, the government should do something about this. That reveals that government is our God. Instead, our first response should be prayer. God, save us. Lord, have mercy. Now, there is, of course, a place for us doing something 
or for government to try to solve something, but prayer should be our first response. And we should expect prayer to be the most effective thing that we do because we're calling upon the all-powerful God of the universe who also loves us personally and perfectly. And then God, he may use our actions or our neighbor actions or even government action to answer our prayer. But this is what it means to pray. Every time we see injustice, every time we see something wrong, we pray. And every time we see something good, we thank God because all good gifts are from him. And that's the point of the parable. And we get the meaning right away. We should always pray and not lose heart. The other thing that's kind of strange about this parable is that Jesus compares God to an unrighteous judge. And that's kind of weird. In other parables, God is compared to a positive character, like a good king, a good master, a good father, a good farmer, a good anything, etc. But here Jesus compares our Father in heaven to an unrighteous judge, kind of. Here's the thing, though. It's not a comparison of similarity so much as it's a comparison of contrast. There are some similarities between the unrighteous judge and God, but ultimately our Heavenly Father is not like the unrighteous judge. And so Jesus says, Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. God is different than the unrighteous judge. If even an unrighteous judge eventually gives justice, how much faster does your perfectly attentive and loving Heavenly Father give justice to his dear children? He will give justice to them speedily. Now let's take a little bit of a closer look at this widow and the unrighteous judge. The judge neither feared God nor respected man. This is why Jesus later calls him unrighteous. And to say that he is unrighteous means that he is unjust. It means the same thing. In English, we have two different words, just and right or justice and righteousness. These are different words in English, but in Greek, they only have one word for this concept that we divide into two. To be unrighteous means that this judge was not just. He wasn't necessarily anti-justice, like he thought justice was a bad thing, but it's more like he just doesn't care about justice. We see this when Jesus says he neither feared God nor respected man. He didn't care what God says about something, and he, didn't, he wasn't worried about answering to God on the judgment day, nor did he care what other people thought or what happened to other people. These are, of course, terrible attributes in a judge. He's a judge who doesn't care about anyone but himself. But then here's this widow who keeps coming to him, crying out for justice against her adversary. Eventually, the unjust judge gives in, not because he cares about her case, but because he just cares about himself. She's bothering him. She's annoying him. But there's more to it than mere annoyance. He says, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Another way to translate that would be, I will give her justice 
so that she will not, by continually coming, give me a black eye. Now, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that he's afraid she's going to come up and sock him in the face. He's afraid that she's going to injure his reputation. That's the thing about having a black eye. It's on your face where everyone can see it. And so if you get into a fight and you walk away with a bruised shoulder, eh, so what? It probably hurts a little bit, but no one can see it. It might hurt the same as a black eye, but no one sees it. But a black eye, that's a mark of shame. And so the judge, he, he isn't concerned about this woman striking him on the face and giving him a literal black eye. He's concerned that her continual coming will leave a mark of shame on his reputation. He doesn't want to be known as the judge who doesn't give justice. And so the unjust judge finally relents and gives the widow justice. And we should really see God's hand behind this. It's one thing if a just person acts justly. But when an unjust person acts justly, we should especially see God's hand behind that because he has done something to compel an unjust person to do what is right. In the case of the unjust judge, it's God's institution of government. God instituted government for this very reason, to serve justice in the world. And God has instituted it in such a way that even unjust rulers are compelled to do justice because if they don't, their reputations will suffer a black eye. And so God invites us to pray persistently because if even an unjust judge eventually gives justice, how much quicker will God give justice to his elect children? Now, if you've been listening carefully so far and thinking about this, you might have an objection or a doubt in your mind about this. There might be something that makes you think, eh, that doesn't quite make sense. And it might be this. If God has promised to give justice speedily, why is there still so much injustice in the world? An injustice, broadly speaking, is anything that's not right. Anything that is not the way God designed it to be is not right. Another way to say that is that it's not just. That's really what injustice is. It's anything contrary to God's design for the world. Now, we notice those injustices that happen to us more than we notice those injustices that happen to someone else. When someone cheats us or hurts us or when we get sick for no apparent reason, that's when we feel injustice. The justice alarm in our consciences goes off and we say, hey, that's not right. No, that's not really a bad thing. This is actually a good function of our consciences to show us when injustice has occurred to us. And in those times, we should also awaken to see those same injustices done to other people. But our sinful natures are so curved in on ourselves that we often fail to recognize the injustice that is done to other people. And we especially fail to realize when we are the source of that injustice. And we often are. And so the last statement of Jesus, which kind of seems disconnected or unrelated from the rest of the passage, is really the bow that ties the whole thing together. 
He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Jesus is talking about his second coming. When he comes again to raise the dead, bring his believing children into the new creation, and cast the devil and unbelievers into hell. Until that time, God is patient with us. For him to come and put an end, a final end, to all injustice would mean that the time for repentance would be over. But God does not desire for any to perish, and so he's patient. At some point, though, that day will come. But until that time, God is working. And how has God worked? This is critical for us to understand. God's greatest act of, ju- of justice actually came very shortly after Jesus told this parable. Because Jesus, he was on his way to Jerusalem and the cross. He was quite right when he said that God will give justice speedily. Because there God laid all the sin of humanity on Jesus, and he was justly condemned there. Justice was done speedily. Your sin was atoned for there. All the injustice you have inflicted on others was judged there. And so God gives justice to us quickly and in the most merciful way. He is now faithful and just to forgive us our sins because those sins were paid for. And Jesus himself then on the third day received justice when he was raised from the dead. Another way to say that is that he was vindicated. To be vindicated simply means to receive justice. It's when the right thing is revealed and shown. That's vindication. And so we should pray for justice. We should pray for justice in our lives. We should pray for justice in the world. And most of all, what that means is that we should pray for forgiveness. Because it is just for God to declare us righteous now. And we should pray for the justice or vindication that will come on the last day when Jesus raises us from the dead. That will be our ultimate vindication. That will finally be the moment when everything is set right. The new creation will be exactly how God intends it to be. It will have no sin, no death, no sickness, no fighting, no poverty. In other words, it will be just and there will be no injustice. And this really is what Jesus teaches us to pray for in this passage. And so he says, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That is, will he find his children still worshiping the triune God? Will we still be confessing our sins, confessing the faith, and trusting his forgiveness? Will we still be praying for the justice of the new creation to come upon us? To us, this might seem slow, Because this world is all that we know, and the only thing we know about time is what we experience in this world. But God is working and has worked speedily to bring justice to us. And yet he knows that we're impatient. And so he invites us to be persistent. He gives us permission to annoy him with our constant pleas for justice. And so we should not lose heart because he will answer. And our proof of this is that he already gave his son into death for us and raised him from the dead. In the same way, he will vindicate his children by raising us from the dead. And this is what we pray for when we pray for justice. Amen. And now may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.